If you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Zechariah. That's Zechariah's prophecy and chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 10. Hear once again the word of our holy God. And I'll pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. It shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadar Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shemai apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Thus far the reading of God's word this evening, and may he bless it to us. Before we come to the text, beloved, I, I think it's important for us to remember that what we have in these four verses are things that can be fulfilled, even tonight. There are realities in our text that, in a very real sense, are not exclusive to any particular period in the covenant of grace. There are realities that are in this text that indeed may, may be here, may mark this evening, or they may not. We either will know by experience what is in this text, or we won't. And so, beloved, our great need is to plead with our great and our merciful God to give us some experience, some real knowledge of what we find here. What is it that we find? Well, beloved, as we look at the prophecy of Zechariah as a whole, you remember that this was a ministry that was that was begun in a time when the church underage was under all kinds of oppression and distress. Zechariah was called to go to a church that had recently come out of exile and was already, already dealing with all kinds of disturbances back in the land. She was delivered from one oppressor, but as it were, seemed to be plunged into a whole host of others. And so for that reason, the house of God was left unbuilt. Jerusalem largely left as they found it. But you remember that God had called both Haggai and Zechariah to go and to preach to the church underage, to urge them to work, to, to remind them that it was their solemn duty, notwithstanding all the providences that they faced, it was their solemn duty to seek first the things of God. That was Zechariah's call. And so the prophet goes and he preaches. And in the first, really, eight, ver- eight chapters of Zechariah, that's precisely what you have. Here the prophet speaks as God's penman, and, and he comes with all kinds of precepts, urging, urging the people of God to action. And then you remember that the people of God respond. The people of God do work. 
You find that record given to us really in the book of Nehemiah most of all. But you find that they do so under all kinds of difficulties. You see, the church to which Zechariah was called was a church that faced all kinds of problems. And so, of course, they were people who required reminders of God's care. That God indeed would remain faithful to every promise that he had made to his own. Notwithstanding every cross-providence, notwithstanding every development both within Israel and beyond, God would be faithful. And that was Zechariah's message. But to perhaps illustrate what the church was facing in this day, I want you to remember, I want you to remember back to when the temple was finally being rebuilt. You see, the church gathered when the second foundation was laid. There was a multitude, you remember, that was there. And and Ezra tells us there was a mixed multitude of sorts. There were those who were younger. They, They were there, the younger generation of the church, beholding for the very first time the house of God being rebuilt. And so Ezra tells us that these ones were rejoicing. And the sound of their rejoicing echoed through the hills. Ezra also tells us that there was another portion of the church that was there. He describes them, and Haggai describes them as well as the ancients. You see, these ones, they were there whenever Solomon's temple was still standing. They remember the glory of the first house. And so when they see the second house, and they see that it is not as glorious as was the first, Ezra tells us they mourned. In fact, their mourning was such that Ezra tells us again, you couldn't discern whether the crowd was weeping for joy or lamenting. That was the church, the kind of church that Zechariah was ministering to. A church that at once was looking forward to things and with eagerness. And then also a church that was mindful of the past and of the deep cost that sin and rebellion brought. That's the church to which Zechariah is called. And to that church, the Lord gives through his prophet really two principal themes. They need to know, as I've already mentioned, God's covenant faithfulness. But to that generation that did not go through the exile, they also needed to be reminded of the odiousness of sin. They needed to be reminded of something that they themselves didn't experience as closely as the generation before had. That rebellion against God really came at a high cost. That sin was really odious. And so the prophet Zechariah's ministry is twofold. Set before them the comfort that is sure to God's people, and also show them the sinfulness of sin. And in our text this evening, and really the text that we take up for the remainder of our communion season, we find both themes prevailing. I want you to see how how we find them. Take what you have in verse 10. You have God really giving here a promise. He says, I will pour upon the house of David, uh, there the house representing the rulers and the princes among the people, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that is the general population, right through the social strata. He'll pour upon them the spirit of grace and of supplications. 
you'll find that this is now going to become a praying people. And what's striking about this very first line is that here the Lord, through his prophet, is telling us the cause of all that follows in our text. Everything that follows is because the Lord has poured upon them the spirit of grace and supplications. Now, what, what is the effect that has produced? Well, we find out in the next line. They shall look upon me, that is the Lord, whom they have pierced. They, that is the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They shall mourn as those who have pierced the Lord. That word pierce in the Hebrew, it's a, it's, a, it's a graphic, it's as graphic a word in the Hebrew as it is in the English. Elsewhere it's translated to be stricken through. It, it's simply a word that's to, to describe one slain. And here we're told that as God pours forth this spirit of grace and supplications, they will mourn as those who have pierced the Lord. They shall mourn for him, that is, they shall wail, they shall lament, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. This is the effect of that outpouring described in the first line of verse 10. They will become a mourning people. And we're told in the next lines as well, the extent of this mourning. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, etc. We'll see toward the end of our time this evening why the specifics in that list are important. But, But just note, note how the prophet describes this mourning. It is something that is done greatly. It is a significant act. It's something that is quite visible. And it's something that's universal. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, obviously the question we have to ask is, as this is a promise, when was this fulfilled? Or has it been fulfilled? Beloved, as you look through chapters 12 to 14, you'll find that there's one prevailing theme, and that theme is brought to us in the language of a day. Often the repetition is, in that day. And our text is speaking about that day, that day that spans from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to 14, verse 21. And what happens in that day? I think that will help us answer the question. First of all, it's a day of noted victory. I will make Jerusalem, says the Lord, a cup of trembling. I'll gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. Jerusalem, Israel, will prevail. It's also a day of cleansing. I'll cut off the names of the idols. I'll cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. But it's also a day of engrafting. Everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And so, beloved Zechariah, from chapters 12, chapter 12, 1, all the way to 14, 27, 21, 
The prophet is describing us for us a day in which the Jews are called and the Gentiles engrafted. That's the day. And obviously then the day that we have in view here is not a 24-hour day. The day that we have in view here is a prophetic day. It's a day that the, way, that the prophets describe for us really all throughout the scriptures. A day that really is an age. An age in which we see the conversion of the ancient people of God as well as those who are of the scattered nations, now brought back to the Lord. That's the day that occupies the prophet's attention from 12.1 all the way to the end of the book. But strikingly, beloved, as you look at this text, and particularly our text this evening, you'll notice that there is a parallel. This text is mentioned again in Scripture, and it's mentioned as it having been fulfilled. In John 19 we read, The soldiers with a spear pierced Christ's side, that the scripture should be fulfilled. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. Beloved, the age that Zechariah sees is really an age that extends all the way from the first century to the millennium a day in which we find Christ literally pierced, a day also that will include the engrafting of the nations and the calling once again of the Jewish people. That, beloved, is the day that Zechariah has in view. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, the question is then how are we to apply it? How are we to understand this text? Knowing, of course, that the calling of the Jews in its fullness has not yet come to pass. It was future to the apostles, and it's future still to us. Well, beloved, there is, notwithstanding many ways that this text speaks to us. It speaks to us because the very self-same method of grace that is used to draw the Jews in the future is the self-same method of grace that is used in the present to draw souls to Christ. And so though in its though strictly speaking this text looks very much forward to a future glory beloved we see in this text a picture of God's grace and its method with the souls of men that is true through every age true for everyone who falls in this age this gospel age that the prophet sees and if we take it in this way as i believe we ought beloved there's one basic theme that emerges, and that is that true penitence, true penitence, as we see in this text, mourn for piercing the Lord. I really need to spend some time this evening demonstrating that from the text, and I intend to do so under two headings. I want to first of all take up the cause of this morning, and then finally, I want us also to look at the character of those who mourn. And so we begin here with the cause, and by that I mean the reason. Why are these ones mourning? According to our text, verse 10, we're told here, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. First of all, they will look. That is, they will look in a different way. Their perception will be different, it will be new. And then in the, and because of that new perception, they will mourn. Those, the one whom they hated, the Lord whom they pierced, They will now look upon him, and they will mourn for him. It's a radical change that you see in this text. 
the murderer is turned to mourner. And why are they mourning? Well, they look and they mourn. And they mourn because they themselves see the piercing. They have pierced him. And they mourn their crime. Beloved, in its narrowest sense, this text was fulfilled in John 19, was it not? John himself tells us that as Christ was pierced with a spear, he says these things were done that this very prophecy would be fulfilled. But judicious commentators through the centuries have said that that is, perhaps, we should see that as the strictest fulfillment, but not the only fulfillment. Because really in this text what you have is something that is true not just in the first century. What you have here are realities at work that are true right through human history. I mean, I want you to remember, beloved, that when Christ thinks about the cross, when he thinks about that very literal piercing that he would endure at Calvary, he does not see that as an extraordinary phenomenon. In other words, he doesn't look at the hatred that he sees there as being unique. In fact, whenever he speaks of it himself in Matthew 21, he puts it this way. When the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. Their hatred for God was already there. But at Calvary, it was manifested in a very literal and extreme way. But the hatred was not new. And so, beloved, throughout the centuries, this text has been used to describe not just what you have in John 19, though it includes it. It describes actually all of human rebellion against the Lord. And that is because sin is a kind of piercing the Lord. And we see that from two reasons. Beloved, note how the scriptures describe the carnal mind. The carnal mind is at enmity with God, such that men are called haters of God. Think about that, beloved. The scriptures say that man is concluded under sin in such a way that his mind is at variance and in a settled disposition against the Lord. He hates God. Well, in God's account, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. How does God look at one who hates God? If, if, beloved, hatred of a brother is a virtual kind of murder in God's account, what is hatred of God in God's perspective? You see, beloved, hatred of this kind and all sin is born out of this. Sin is a kind of piercing the Lord. And I don't really need to spend too much time demonstrating that to you, do I? Our hearts, our hearts against his rule speak thus. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want any of his sovereignty. In our minds, beloved, in our, in our heart, inmost heart, as those unregenerate, our disposition is such that if we could, we would throw him from the throne. That's what Psalm 2 is describing. Or let me go further. Beloved, this kind of heart is pleased to eliminate God entirely. 
I mean, take it from what you have the theoretical atheist saying in Psalm 14. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. He simply removes God from his thinking. He eliminates God in his own heart. And by the way, this is not just the theoretical atheist. The practical atheist does the same thing. James, Titus tell, uh, sorry, Paul and Titus tell us, they profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him. There are those who, though they do not profess to be atheists, their lives at least testify that their hearts would be very pleased if God were not. It would be pleased if God were simply not. And beloved, I want you to note, too, that all sin, in some sense, partakes of that kind of hatred, that kind of desire. When we sin, when men sin, they say a number of things. One, in Psalm 10, says it this way, God will never see it. And so they eliminate from their thinking an omniscient God. Others say, like Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? These ones eliminate his sovereignty. Others, others challenge his holiness. The Lord says to the children of Israel, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity, and are become vain. Seemingly, beloved, their, their walk seemed to indicate that the Lord was not so righteous, not so holy as he truly is. Beloved, in the heart, this is what man does. This is God's view of sin. God looks at the hearts of men, he looks at sinners, and he sees them as those who are trying to remove him if they could. If they could reach into heaven, if they could somehow enter the third heaven, God knows that their heart would be such as they would have him removed. Slain, even. Beloved, we don't think about sin this way. But our forebears were very, very quick to remind us, this is how the Scriptures present God's account of sin. All sin is deicide. Charnock put it this way, sin is called deicidium, a slaughtering of God, because every sin being enmity to God doth virtually intend or desire in its nature the destruction of God. Beloved, the Lord says that these ones have pierced him. And the way we take this text is we understand in one sense, all sin, if it could, at its, at its heart and by its very nature, would do just that. Your sin and my sin, in God's account, is deicidal. Beloved, sin is vicious. It's violent. It's personal. In God's account, beloved, our God who searches us and knows us knows that within our breasts there is a heart that is even more wicked 
in the heart of somebody who is a patricide. Somebody who would kill their own father. Oh, Christian, if you are in Christ, beloved, let this text touch you as it should. The one who has not only created you, but has redeemed you. Oh, Christian, he has redeemed you even though your very heart by nature was murderous. Though he knew that your very heart would have wished him off the throne. And beloved, this should lead us to catalog our sins, shouldn't it? To remind us that when we have sinned, we've sinned against a God and sinned against him in such a way that we revile that he's there. We sin against his sovereignty, his omniscience, even his holiness. And in all these, beloved, we sin in spite of so much mercy shown. But beloved, there's another way that we're to take this text. It is the case that all sin is deicidal, but there's another sense. There are some who are guilty of piercing Christ, particularly and today. In our text, we have here the Jewish people mourning for their guilt in in piercing the Lord. And as I said to you already, this looks most strictly to the engrafting of the Gentiles and the calling of the Jews. But, beloved, they are not the only ones in Scripture who are called those who are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11 applies that to any who would misuse the sacrament. But beloved, there are other ways as well that the scriptures hold out to us. As we think about Calvary, we think about that moment when you have all, as it were, representatives of the world present, the Jewish and the Gentile world amassed. And and you know how our world reads that moment. They see a crucified Jesus, and, and they say that it is a horrible crime. The Romans shouldn't have done it, and the Jews shouldn't have done it. And the world prides themselves on their tolerance, and they say, we would never have done something like that. We would have never consented to that man's death. Even the unbelieving man on the radio, on the TV show, will say as much to us today. And the obvious question we have to ask is, is that the case? Because according to the apostles, Beloved, every time we fall under the preaching of God's word, we are taken in a sense to Calvary. This is what Paul says to the church in Galatia. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently sent forth, crucified among you. He is speaking to people who are never, never, never imaginably close to Golgotha. And he says, nevertheless, Christ was crucified among you. And then in chapter 3, that text, or from that which that text is taken, he describes it as through the preaching of God's word. And so, beloved, you and I stand at Calvary, according to the Apostle, with Christ crucified among us every time we come under the sound of His Word. And so the question is, are we better than the Romans? Are we better than the Jews? Horatius Bonner put it this way, from the first moment that you heard of that blood, that is Christ's blood, God has held you as consenting to its shedding. 
God made it known to you that you might disown the deed and own him Lord. Beloved, if we don't comply with the gospel, we are consenting to Christ's death as though he were a blasphemer, as though he were worthy to die. That's the point. We are like Saul as he held the coats of those who had stoned Stephen. And in that case, beloved, yes, even today there are those who are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord because they have heard of a crucified Christ and have still refused to take Him by faith. Beloved, unbelief is a piercing of Christ. But there's also another way. Those, according to the Scriptures, who make a profession but whose lives don't agree with that profession are also those who pierce Christ today. The Apostle describes such ones as they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. They have trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith He was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. Beloved, in God's account, it is not the case. It is not the case that only the Romans and the Jews in the first century could be guilty of slaying Christ. There are those who walk among us today, says the apostles, who are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And here is how. Because they've made a profession of faith, and yet they've denied it with their own works. And here's how they're guilty of it. By, deny, by, by not living in conformity to Him. By continuing in rebellion despite their profession, they are saying there is no life-giving grace through His satisfactory death. As they continue in sin, they are saying they never died to it in Christ. Which is saying something, of course, about themselves. But as they profess Christ, beloved, make no mistake, they're also heaping blasphemies upon Christ as well. And of course, there's another way, beloved. There's another way that we can see others piercing Christ. Believer, the free grace of God was the rise, the fount of all dying love in Christ. Never forget that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Yes, believer. He died out of a deep and a free love. But make no mistake, he was bruised for your sins. The sins he just committed today were on his account. Beloved, and they were exacted from his body and from his soul. Those very sins today, beloved, exacted from Christ. And so, beloved, our text holds out that we should admire the deep love of our God. But oh, should abhor, should abhor our sin. It was for these things that Christ was pursued, body and soul, that you might live. Finally, as we close, beloved, if that is the cause, 
if these ones see as they ought to, that, that their sin at its heart and in God's account is a kind of deicidal thing, that at least in its heart, if it could, it would kill all that God is. And then, when we think of this in terms of Christ, as they continue to refuse to come under His calls, or at least ref- continue to refuse to come genuinely by faith to Him, they are crucifying Christ afresh. Then, beloved, what of the morning? When these ones who have pierced the Lord have the Spirit of grace poured upon them, what kind of mourning is produced? Our text says, They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn, as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. The word mourneth there has behind it an idea of, of ritual, something that's external and visible. But the word bitterness, really, it indicates a brokenness of heart. It's something that's internal and so invisible. And when the text speaks here of the morning of Hadad Ramon, the valley of Megiddo, it's really what we read in, in 2 Chronicles 35, where there the people of God are mourning the death of Josiah. And so the sense is that, that this, is a, this is a mourning that is real, that, that, is, that is genuinely, genuinely from the heart, but is also visible. Just as visible as mourning for Josiah was. And beloved, then it was a mourning that, is, that was at once internal, external, and great. For those, beloved, who know that they are guilty, that they are guilty themselves from the heart of what we find in our text this evening. When the Spirit of grace comes, it produces mourning then that is deep and it's personal. I close only with reminding you what we read in Acts 2. When they looked on the one whom they pierced, the text says they themselves were pricked in heart. That is, they had a sense, first of all, of how personal sin really was. That sin was not some deviation from from some arbitrary moral code, but that it was in fact murder. That they were in fact deicides, at heart at least. And this produces in them a real and a deep mourning. And so, beloved, you notice that they agree then with what the prophet says. They have pierced him. They see their sin as God sees their sin. God sees it as being nothing less than that kind of hatred that if man could, would remove him from the throne. So eliminate him as if to slay him. They agree with God's assessment. But then they ask, what shall we do? Beloved, what you find here, you find here true humiliation, true humiliation looking, looking at the one whom they have offended. And then you find 
you find the work of faith. There must, there may be something. The case is not hopeless. Beloved, that's the kind of mourning that we find in this text. But beloved, as we close, you see how this is described for us. These are those who are mourning as if for their firstborn. And so take that analogy as it comes to us from the text. These ones are brought by God's grace to feel as though they have lost a child. And so, friend, imagine a family that has lost a child. If that family were unfeeling, had no evidence of any grief whatsoever, even the world would say that that was a disordered family with all kinds of abnormalities about it. It's not normal, in other words, for someone to suffer such a loss and to be untouched by it. What our text is saying is, beloved, it's just as unthinkable for a Christian to reflect on their sins and not to have feeling and to do so coldly and formally. It's just as strange for the Christian to say that they are Christ's, that they are dying to sin and yet know nothing of a deep mourning for it. Our text says this is what is produced when the Spirit of grace is poured. And so Christian, first of all, as we look at this text, you are to see how great redeeming love is. Is it not remarkable that he came to to save even those who from the heart would have removed him from the throne, who were deicides at heart. But this is a text also that requires questions of us. Do you agree with the guilt? I mean, do you, do you see sin in the way that the text has it this evening? Or do you think for some reason that sin is not as that enmity with God as the scriptures say? Or that God doesn't see sin as being the kind of hatred that it is? Or do you not see yourself as guilty of these things? Beloved, this text asks us this question even tonight. And the next question is, is this at all evident in you and in me? This kind of humiliation. Can we say that we looked upon Christ? Can we say that we have looked upon the one whom we have pierced? And we've been brought to mourning and to humiliation. The degrees may differ, beloved. The degrees may very well differ. But there must be some humiliation. Must be some mourning for sin.
This text exhorts us then, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, to meditate on sin as the Word of God brings it to us. Sin is a piercing, a violent, a vicious, and a personal thing. Always. Whether committed by a Christian or a pagan, it is vicious, murderous at heart. And so, beloved, meditate in these things. But also admire. Admire that though this is how God sees sin, He nevertheless says to sinners, though your sins be as scarlet, He will make them whiter than snow. If you would but come to Christ. And so Christian, as we close, friend, as we close, the question this evening in this communion season has to be, do we know by experience what this text holds out to us? We need to pray that we do. We need to pray in earnest that we do. Because we don't see sin as we should. Beloved, we don't. And if we don't see sin as we should, is it any wonder that we don't cling to Christ as we ought? Our earnest prayer ought to be that the Spirit of grace would fall, would make us a mourning people, that we might cling to Him all the more. And may He do that work in us even now. Amen.